Hello, my name is Rachel Salvatore, and welcome to my podcast, A Picture of African Slavery, Disability and Debility in the Colonial Caribbean. This episode was created for the purpose of the final project in Dr. Heather Vrana's course, Disability in the World. Today, I will be investigating the various ways in which slavery can disable individuals. In order to do so, I will be looking at the history of enslavement in the Colonial Caribbean, I will be taking a particular focus on Barbados, but will also be drawing upon sources and information from the Bahamas, Curacao, Jamaica, and more. In addition to the harsh and unforgiving environments that individuals were subjected to under the institution of slavery, Africans in the colonial Caribbean were also subject to physical punishment and mutilation, which often left them permanently disabled. It was not uncommon for these punishments to be administered publicly in front of other enslaved people. By making a spectacle of the punishment, slaveholders not only added an element of shame to the abuse, but also effectively deterred other enslaved people from breaking rules or rebelling. This practice could leave the primary recipient of the punishment physically disabled, but enslaved spectators would be socially disabled, with their spirits broken and with any plans to resist against their masters destroyed. While all people who had been maimed by their masters were left more physically vulnerable to the horrors of slavery, all enslaved individuals were rendered societally immobile by the racist ideologies that surrounded enslavement and the implementation of laws that sought to protect the institution of slavery. Historians studying the socially and physically destructive impacts of slavery can measure the disablement of enslaved bodies in many different ways. It is helpful to examine the evolution of methods that were utilized to ensure that slavery continued to provide an effective labor force to the colonies. In this episode, I will be looking at various acts and laws that were passed to uphold the institution of slavery throughout the colonies, documentation from a European traveler in Barbados, and the physical remains of a young woman from Curacao. And, in an effort to trace the intergenerational and disabling forces that slavery left on populations, I will be referring to modern rates of hypertension in the Caribbean and the current prevalence of mental illnesses in African Caribbeans who now live in England. In this podcast episode, I assert that varying physical and social forces worked alongside each other to disable and debilitate those who fought against the institution of slavery in the colonial Caribbean, and that some of these impacts can still be traced into the present day. The first English ship to arrive to Barbados came to the island in 1625, and the island was claimed on behalf of King James I. Two years later, on February 17, 1627, Captain Henry Powell arrived to the island with 80 English settlers and 10 enslaved people. The colonists would establish a House of Assembly in 1639. Barbados was virtually unpopulated when the English arrived due to the fact that many of the Caribs migrated or were enslaved during the period of Spanish colonization in the 16th century. Because of this, Barbados was what is known as a settler colony. 18th century English jurist William Blackstone defines this as a colony claimed by, quote, right of occupancy only by finding them desert and and uncultivated and peopling them from the mother country, end quote. Within a few years of their arrival, a great amount of land on the island had been cleared in order to make room for cotton and tobacco plantations, 
and by the 1630s, sugarcane was introduced to the agriculture as well. These three crops required great amounts of physically taxing labor. This labor was mostly split between indentured servants, some of whom were kidnapped in order to meet labor demands, and enslaved laborers. Because Barbados was a settler colony, settlers had a great amount of autonomy from the English Parliament in establishing their laws and codes. This meant that they would only retain the parts of English law that they found to be useful in the Caribbean islands. This was exemplified in the early slave codes of Barbados and Jamaica, which were gradually formed by local legislatures and not England as settlers saw fit. These codes would suit the immediate needs and concerns of the plantocracy. These early slave codes casted African people as subhuman and animalistic. Because there were no existent laws that defined the status of enslaved people in England, local lawmakers held ultimate authority in determining where black individuals stood in Caribbean society. According to the preamble of the 1688 Barbados Slave Act, Africans, quote, barbarous, wild, and savage nature renders them wholly unqualified to be governed by the laws, customs, and practices of our nation, end quote. The language used in the 1688 law took away some of the protections that had originally been provided to enslaved Africans in the Slave Code of 1661. While the 1661 code protected Africans from the arbitrary, cruel, and outrageous wills of every evil-disposed person, the 1688 law only claimed to protect the enslaved from the cruelties and insolences of themselves. Additionally, the 1688 law provided only loose meanings of enslaved people's misdemeanors, which would essentially grant slaveholders the right to murder the Africans whom they enslaved. The rights attributed to the African person's body were no different from those granted to domestic animals in the Caribbean. Lastly, to contextualize, it is important to provide a brief explanation of what disability meant at this time in the Caribbean. Although disability scholars note how industrial capitalism would radically change how disability was understood by the 19th century, features of industrial capitalism also existed in this early modern period. As slave societies, the Caribbean islands placed great value upon economic output, so at the end of the day, lawmakers sought to protect their productivity. Under the institution of slavery, African people's bodies were physically disabled in the Caribbean. Under certain acts and codes, slaveholders were permitted to physically assault and mutilate the Africans whom they enslaved. Another change from Barbados' 1661 slave code to its 1688 slave code, which is also referred to as an act for the governing of Negroes, was defining what constituted a crime. By the 1661 slave code, Punishable acts of capital offense crimes included arson, highway robbery, and murder burglary. In the 1688 Slave Code, however, an enslaved person could be sentenced to death if they even attempted to commit one of these capital crimes. This granted slave owners even more power over the African people. This 1688 Act enumerated the physical punishments that slaveholders were permitted to use against the people they enslaved. The law reads, quote, be it further enacted and ordained that if any Negro or slave whatsoever male offer any violence to any Christian by striking or the like, such Negro or other slave shall, for his or her first offense, be information given upon oath to the next justice, be severely whipped by the constable by order of the said justice. For his second offense of that nature, by order of the justice of peace, 
he shall be severely whipped, his nose slit, and be burned in some part of his face with a hot iron. End quote. These painful and disabling punishments undoubtedly exacerbated work conditions for African peoples. The law then goes on to explain that for an enslaved person's third offense, quote, he shall receive, by order of the governor and council, such greater punishment as they shall think meet to inflict, end quote. By this law, slaveholders reserved the right to mutilate and disable men, women, and children as they saw fit. In her book, Between Fitness and Death, Disability and Slavery in the Caribbean, Stephanie Hunt Kennedy astutely writes, quote, Without the legal or social protection of the law, bonds people were reduced to a mere naked or bare life, thereby subjecting them to forms of disablement to which free whites were protected, end quote. All African peoples were in a perpetual state of danger from their masters, who viewed them as no more than pieces of property to be whipped, cut, burned, and dismembered. Both English slave owners and colonial slave owners utilized physical punishments against the individuals they enslaved. However, there is a distinction that can be made between the colonies and England. English punishments usually were carried out in a limited amount of time, but punishments in the colonies had no set amount of time, nor were they carried out at a specific place. Because of these loose rules, which were likely made deliberately ambiguous by local legislatures, slave owners had the power to prolong punishments for as long as they wanted. This would not only lengthen the amount of time that an African person would be subjected to intense physical pain, but it likely also resulted in deeper wounds and longer, more complicated healing processes. Mutilation was often used as a marker of one's status. This practice even took place during the Middle Passage, where traders and planters would use hot irons to sear African skin to mark them with signs of ownership. This wound would be present to every person they encounter, it would serve as a constant reminder to them that their bodies do not belong to them, that they were forcibly possessed by others. Whether it was scars upon their back that they received from a whip, cuts upon their nose after it was slit, brands on their face, or even the absence of an arm or a leg, physical changes to a person's body were more than just a form of punishment. It was even more than physically disabling a person. It went deeper than that. These wounds created a way to visually reinforce an enslaved person's status, to show them that they did not belong to themselves. They would not only be identified as property by their skin color, but by their mutilations, which also served as evidence of the person's transgressions. They were constant reminders of inferiority and subservience. And as Hunt Kennedy writes, quote, Lawmakers devoted a great deal of attention to the challenge of making disfigurement an enduring mark of slavery's disabling effect, end quote. These scars were not just a side effect of punishment. They were intentional. African enslaved people often had to endure physically debilitating pain as well. To examine debilitation under enslavement, I will be looking towards a set of bodily remains that were found in Curacao. Most of the historical documents about Curacao that have been preserved today were written by the members of the elite. This means that documentation about the history of enslavement is likely very biased and even inaccurate. Some sources will explain how, in comparison to other Caribbean islands, enslavement in Curacao was mild and tranquil. However, there are also records that exist that show that enslaved people in Curacao would revolt and risk their lives in order to attempt to escape to Venezuela. So, by examining these remains, archaeologists hope to gain more insight into the true experiences of enslaved people on the island.
Their findings demonstrate how many individuals were likely debilitated under the institution of slavery. The remains were excavated in Petermai, which is an 18th century suburb of Willemstead in Curacao. Unlike many other Caribbean islands, Curacao did not have any large-scale sugar production plants due to its arid environment. This would mean that most plantations on this island would only produce subsistence crops that did not require a large workforce. Enslaved women in Willemstad were often either purchased for domestic labor or for prostitution. It is also worth noting that there was a greater percentage of enslaved women at Curacao, which can be attributed to the fact that more enslaved men were needed where sugar was being cultivated. On December 12, 1985, the Archaeological Anthropological Institute of the Netherlands Antilles were contacted by the Curacao police and were requested to recover and identify human remains that were found during construction at the Chamber of Commerce property. The archaeologists realized that most of the remains had been disturbed by construction workers, which limited some of the information that they would be able to glean about the person. However, they were able to determine that the burial likely took place between the 17th century and the early 19th century. The person's skeleton was analyzed for their sex, age, ancestry, and pathology. By examining the skeleton's cranium, as well as the morphology of the distal humerus, it was determined that the skeleton was female. Assessing the age of this woman's remains began to reveal more about the environment in which she lived. Her chronological age, which is the length of life of an individual, was determined by analyzing the stage of dental eruption. She most likely was somewhat older than 18 and a half years when she died. Her biological age, which is the stage of development that an individual has reached, was determined by looking at the epiphyseal fusion. By looking at this growth plate, researchers saw that she had a biological age between 12 and 15 years, at least a three-year difference from her chronological age. This delay in puberty could be due to several different factors, such as chronic infection, environmental conditions, hard labor, and malnutrition. In the case of this skeleton, however, archaeologists believe that this developmental delay was a result of systemic stress that resulted from enslavement, which would probably include infection and hard labor over a long time span, as well as the psychological and sexual abuse that she likely faced at the hands of her master among other elites in Curacao. By examining the skeleton's morphological traits and by using a program known as Fordisk 3.0 for metric analysis, experts assessed her geographical ancestry. The Fordisk 3.0 program compared her measurements to three different data groups, a 19th century population from the U.S. Forensic Data Bank, which contains both European and African ancestry individuals, the Howells database that contains archaeological populations from around the world, and a 20th century collection. This assessment revealed that she was of African ancestry and was similar to 19th and 20th century black females. By looking at the skeleton's enamel ratios, it was determined that she was not local to Curacao. The ratios were consistent with origins in West Africa. She likely grew up in West Africa and was forced to endure the Middle Passage across the Atlantic and into Curacao. This stressful event also could have been contributing to the delay in her development. In the study of her pathology, experts found single linear hypoplastic lesions in the same location on all four of her third molars. This is indicative of a stressful event, like malnutrition or disease, during her late childhood or early adolescence. This also could have been a product of physically and psychologically stressful events, like being ripped away from her home in Africa and the forced journey to Curacao.
Experts also found osteochondritis desiccans at her left knee, which is indicative of the endurance of high levels of physical activity during her adolescence. Contour change that was observed at the left occipital condyle is indicative of frequent use of the neck when, in combination with large mastoid processes that were found, may reveal that she could have been doing domestic activities like milking, fruit picking, and carrying large loads on her head, which is a West African and Caribbean custom. Bilateral areas of new bone formation that were observed at muscle insertions on the arms, legs, and left ilium, as well as on the healed lesion on the cranium, indicates nonspecific infection that irritated the peristeum or trauma or repeated microtrauma to these muscles. These periosteal reactions show that she endured systemic stress and can also be associated with many different diseases. Because enslaved people were overcrowded, malnourished, and impoverished, they had weaker immune systems that left them even more vulnerable to disease. It is likely that slavery made this woman ill. By looking at this woman's remains, researchers were able to center the enslaved person's experience in the Caribbean. Her skeleton was not impacted by the bias or subjectivity that characterized documents left behind by Caribbean elites. Her remains exemplify how the stress that comes with enslavement is in and of itself a disabling and debilitating force, and it left physical markers on her body that were able to be recognized and traced today. As was the experience of the woman whose body was excavated in Curacao, the institution of slavery disabled and debilitated Africans through the spread of disease. This process began with the overseas journey from West Africa to the Americas, known as the Middle Passage, but was exacerbated once they arrived to the Caribbean. Between 1740 and 1807, British slave ships transported 2.2 million African people away from their homes. After Africans were ripped away from their homes by European traders or were sold by their own African leaders, they were either imprisoned in barracoons or boarded slave ships. It is estimated that the death toll for those who endured the Middle Passage, as well as those who were kept in West African barracoons, is somewhere between 10 and 50 percent. Enslaved people were often captured from inland Africa and were forced to march for months on foot in order to reach the coast. Many people died before they would even reach the ship, as they faced starvation, injury, disease, and attack. Some scholars believe that the march to the coast was the deadliest part of the Africans' journey to the Americas. It is known today that the environment of these slave ships was one of the most brutal, miserable, and psychologically destructive conditions one could endure. Africans were overloaded onto ships as if they were cargo. Some of the spaces that they were forced into were so small that the people had no other choice but to crouch and lie down without being able to stand or stretch for the several months the journey lasted. Men were shackled and secured with leg irons, and while women and children were kept in separate quarters that sometimes allowed for more movement, they were more susceptible to violence and sexual abuse from crew members. The African people slept and ate on the same floor where they urinated and defecated. The air was foul and the heat was oppressive. They were fed inadequate meals of corn and grain twice a day, although many individuals attempted to refuse to eat. Most of those who refused, however, were force-fed, and their nutritional needs were not met. Many would attempt suicide, but with nets strung up around the ships, their attempts would not always be successful. 
Some European governments implemented a rule that a surgeon must be present on the journey, but this was out of concern for the crew instead of the Africans themselves, and it is also worth mentioning that these surgeons were highly unqualified. These ships were breeding grounds for deadly diseases with frequent epidemics of fever, dysentery, smallpox, influenza, measles, and parasitic infections. This would result in an estimated one in five Africans dying while on board up until the 1750s, and their corpses would be thrown overboard by other Africans. Once they arrived to the Caribbean, the Africans would be in a very poor state of health, and many would still be suffering from diseases that they contracted while aboard the ships. Despite this, they would still be forcibly set to work in poor conditions. After the slave trade was legally abolished in 1807, it became more difficult for planters to obtain new enslaved people to cultivate their crops. For this reason, more people began paying attention to the medical care delivered to enslaved individuals. They wanted to protect their labor. Some colonial medics would discuss how enslaved Africans' health was impacted by inadequate nutrition, fatigue, poor sanitation, as well as lack of shelter and proper clothing. They advised both slaveholders as well as those who were responsible for transporting Africans in the Middle Passage to improve their living conditions. They also urged them to make hospital care more accessible to enslaved people who were sick, as well as mothers and women who were pregnant. Few attempts were made to begin improving upon medical practices on the plantation, and these efforts were largely unsuccessful in treating the tremendous numbers of enslaved people who were sick and dying in the Caribbean. Enslaved people were also especially vulnerable to even more infectious diseases upon their arrival due to the fact that their immune systems had been compromised after living in such poor conditions during the Middle Passage. Their immune systems were further worsened in the colonies as they continued to receive poor diets, inadequate protein intake, shortages in vitamins A, B1, B2, B3, and C, as well as shortages of the minerals of calcium and iron. They suffered from many different deficiency diseases, such as PEM, pellagra, beriberi, eye and skin lesions, night blindness, some clinical scurvy, anemia, and rickets. It is estimated that as many as a third of the enslaved Africans died within just three to four years of their arrival to the Americas. The Caribbean became notorious for being one of the deadliest places on the planet. As both Europeans and Africans migrated to the Caribbean islands, Disease spread rapidly among the colonists, the enslaved, and the indigenous populations. The Caribbean was even dubbed as the grave of Europeans. The contact between these populations allowed for different diseases to prey on each group's individual weaknesses, and demographic catastrophe ensued. In the enslaved population, death rates were the highest for those who worked in the fields. Plantations bred many different infectious and parasitic diseases that devastated African populations. And although they were more immune to yellow fever and malaria than the indigenous people or the Europeans, Africans were still susceptible to diseases like guinea worms, yaws, leprosy, and pneumonia. As sicknesses spread through the communities, Africans would become weaker and experienced even more pain when working. These diseases also had the potential to leave lasting impacts upon their bodies, with afflictions such as rickets potentially causing permanent bone irregularities, scurvy sometimes bringing about severe dental issues, and leprosy causing progressive and permanent damage to one's skin, nerves, limbs, and eyes. 
Disease was undoubtedly a disabling and debilitating force for enslaved Africans in the Caribbean. When the slave trade was still in effect, slave labor was seen as indispensable. If an enslaved person died of disease, they simply could be replaced. After the trade was abolished in 1807, and it became harder to bring in new workers, however, Europeans realized they needed to protect their workforce. Enslaved labor had become an economic concern of the colonies, and for this reason, it was important for plantation owners, company directors, and military officials to address health-related concerns. Many scholars believe that the expansion of the medicine trade is owed to the exploitation of enslaved people all around the world. However, due to doctors' misunderstanding of medicine, as well as the fact that Africans were considered to be property to be fixed and not humans to be healed, medical care was often just another way to reinscribe the violence of slavery onto their bodies. Healthcare under slavery was in and of itself a disabling force for Africans. By and large, European practitioners did not positively impact the health of the enslaved people they treated. Doctors in the Caribbean had a commitment to a humoral, climatic, and miasmatic notion of medicine. By these theories, doctors believed that the imbalance of one's humors, which was their phlegm, blood, yellow bile, and black bile, was a direct cause of all diseases. It also meant that they believed that diseases would be carried by miasma, a noxious form of air. So, in order to treat diseases like scurvy or rickets that had nothing to do with the body's humors nor bad air, doctors would utilize excessive bleeding, vomiting, purging, and the overdosing of patients with potentially dangerous drugs. Unsurprisingly, it was not uncommon for these so-called treatments to worsen instead of alleviate patient symptoms. Additionally, when plantation owners were not present to supervise the administration of healthcare, and it was only the overseer who was there, enslaved people often received poorer qualities of care. Generally, overseers were less educated, had looser morals, and were overall less likely to provide good treatment to enslaved people. Overseers would come to find out that if they diverted funds away from the health care of enslaved laborers, they would be able to make more money for themselves. Additionally, they found that enslaved people who had not received proper diets or health care and were generally malnourished, were less aggressive and more compliant. This corrupt logic prevented enslaved Africans from getting the help that they needed. Next, it is important to explain how white doctors often neglected to treat diseases in enslaved people unless they believe it would jeopardize their ability to be productive. This was exemplified in their treatment of yaws. Yaws is a highly contagious disease that is characterized by skin eruptions and an indefinite incubation period. It is usually followed by fever, rheumatic-like pains, and sores, which can develop into ulcers. It is often transmitted through skin-to-skin -skin contact and was easily spread within enslaved people's housing, which was overcrowded, unsanitary, and hot. The disease can last for weeks, months, or even years, and can potentially result in physical disfigurement and extreme pain. White doctors, however, generally did not treat enslaved people who had contracted yaws unless they contracted other diseases that were too serious to ignore, diseases that were more likely to kill them, and therefore cost white plantation owners a worker. Doctors did not willingly expose themselves to yaws unless absolutely necessary. 
One doctor, Dr. John Williamson, went to Jamaica in 1798 and found many different Yaw's patients who were suffering from bone aches, decrepitude, and several other symptoms of the disease. Despite making an effort to help the patients initially, he admitted that white people naturally were scared of exposing themselves to the contagious disease. Another doctor, Dr. James Maxwell, explained that, quote, the disgrace and ruin which would be the consequence to any respectable white person contracting it deter most medical men from making themselves conversant with this interesting disease, end quote. Doctors often let yaws run its course in enslaved people, which often worsened their conditions and further harmed their well-being. In addition to intentionally ignoring patients with contagious diseases like yaws, doctors would generally neglect to attend to sick enslaved people on a regular schedule. In Jamaica, planters and their supporters held that doctors visited patients at least two times per week, but as Richard Sheridan points out in his book titled Doctors and Slaves, other evidence reveals a much more irregular pattern of attendance to slave hospitals. According to journals of James Henry Archer, MD, who practiced in St. Anne, Jamaica, there was no uniform pattern of his visits to the estates for which he was responsible. While some estates were visited two to three days in a row or every other day, there were more estates where he would visit once every seven to ten days, in some estates he would only visit every several weeks. Although it is difficult to verify exactly why this was, his journals do reveal that he made frequent express calls to treat white individuals who were sick. His journals were illustrative of negligence to attend to enslaved African patients on a larger scale. It was evident that doctors in Jamaica prioritized treating white individuals before black individuals. Taking all of this into account, historians can understand how white colonial doctors' administration of healthcare was often a disabling force for enslaved Africans. This not only was because of their belief that white people were too respectable to expose themselves to certain diseases, such as yaws, but also because of their limited knowledge of medicine. Doctors often worsened patients' conditions through both active and passive processes. The Barbados 1688 Slave Code states, quote, Whereas the plantations and estates of this land cannot be fully managed and brought into use without the labor and service of great numbers of Negroes and other slaves, end quote. It was well established throughout the Caribbean that the colony's prosperity depended upon the work of enslaved laborers. As explained in the previous section of this episode, doctors in the Caribbean sought to preserve the health of enslaved people with the primary intention being protecting the labor force, and without exerting more energy or using more resources than what is absolutely necessary. These same principles are also illustrated in colonial rules. Laws that claimed to protect enslaved people were not actually in place to protect their bodies against the cruel and disabling forces of slavery but rather to preserve the colony's workforce. In 1826, a pamphlet titled A Picture of Negro Slavery was written by a group of colonists in support of, quote, the mitigation and gradual abolition of slavery throughout the British dominions, end quote. It is from this document that my podcast got its name. The colonists wrote, quote, and his majesty confidently expects to receive assistance from the assembly 
to promote the establishment of a system so calculated to produce the most beneficial effects on the morals and habits of the slave population, end quote. Although this document made several noteworthy strides to better the condition of enslaved people, such as proposing limitations to the punishments that slave owners could legally inflict, its rules are underscored by the idea that protecting enslaved people from harm will allow for greater productivity. In this section on the Bahamas, the document reads, quote, In the Bahamas, from their peculiar circumstances, but more especially from the unproductiveness of their soil and the total absence of all sugar culture, the treatment of the slaves has been practically less severe than in most of the other slave colonies. The slaves have been less worked and better fed, and their numbers have consequently increased at the rate of about 2% per autumn, or probably still at a higher rate, end quote. Because enslaved people had less physically demanding work to do in this colony, were treated less severely than enslaved people in other colonies, and were fed better diets, they were able to reproduce at higher rates. The treatment of enslaved Africans in the Bahamas was positioned as an example to be followed since the enslaved people were more reproductive and therefore more economically productive as well. The pamphlet also repeated the phrase, quote, any punishment not extending to life or limb, end quote, many times when describing the new consolidated slave laws in the Bahamas. This meant that slave owners would be able to inflict any punishment they wished upon the people they enslaved, as long as it did not result in the loss of an arm or a leg, and as long as it was not fatal. This, of course, gave slave owners a great amount of freedom in determining how they could mutilate Africans' bodies. By legally establishing the exclusion of murder and extreme mutilation like dismemberment, however, the law was able to protect enslaved bodies from being completely unable to do work. It is clear that these limits were imposed not to reduce the amount of pain or punishment an African would have to endure, but rather to ensure that slave owners would not be compromising their workforce. Despite these laws in the Bahamas, limb removal as a punishment was not always prohibited throughout all of the Caribbean colonies. Although the 1661 Barbados Slave Code, as well as the 1664 Jamaica Slave Code, both also outlawed punishments that were, quote, injurious to life, limb, or member, end quote, enslaved people who attempted to run away were excluded from this rule. And by 1696, Jamaican law reflected this, with dismemberment being used specifically for bonds people who had tried to incite a rebellion or were suspected of doing so. The laws sought to oppress those who posed a direct risk to the stability of the slave societies, with Africans who attempted to run away or rebel posing the highest threats of them all. It is clear that these laws first and foremost sought to protect the colony's economies. Punishments for enslaved workers seemed to be as brutal as possible without jeopardizing their ability to do work, unless it was in order to set an example for other enslaved people. Next, I would like to touch on how enslavement socially and therefore psychologically disabled Africans in the Caribbean. As I mentioned earlier, labor in the colonies was mostly divided between indentured servants and enslaved people. But despite doing much of the same work, Africans experienced much more intense restrictions of freedom. Lawmakers differentiated between servants and enslaved individuals both socially and legally. While enslaved people were permitted to be mutilated by law, Servants had many more protections in place to ensure their safety. 
For example, servants were allowed to petition courts for grievances as well as sue for their own freedom. Additionally, servants were protected by contracts, which meant that they were legally free after they fulfilled their duties. Enslaved individuals, on the other hand, were considered to be private property and were expected to serve their masters for in their entire lives. Additionally, because racist ideologies shaped the slave societies of the Caribbean colonies, enslaved people's skin color was another way that they were distinguished from indentured servants. Caribbean slave societies operated on a binary between black and white, enslaved and free, and it was easy for individuals to know who was protected by law and who was not. I'd like to look to Richard Ligon's book, A True and Exact History of the Island of Barbados, to further examine how enslaved Africans were socially disabled. Ligon was an English man who traveled to Barbados in 1647. He worked as a plantation manager in the colony until 1650, when he returned to England due to an illness. Upon his return, he wrote this book, where he touches upon the African slavery complex on the island and explains how enslaved African people had been subjugated. Although the enslaved population grew to be double the white population in Barbados, Ligon listed several reasons why a slave revolt was not particularly feared. For one, enslaved Africans were not allowed to touch or handle any weapons. Ligon writes that the enslaved were, quote, fearful to appear in any daring act, end quote. He went on to say that, quote, their spirits are subjugated to so low a condition as they dare not look up to any bold attempt, end quote. Through gruesome punishments and fear-inducing tactics, Africans were conditioned to understand that they could not assert themselves in the colonial society. Furthermore, Ligon explains how Africans were taken from many different parts of the continent, and for that reason they often spoke several different languages. This would inhibit them from communicating to each other about any plans to rebel or revolt and this would leave them totally and utterly alone. Enslavement took away practically all markers of social existence from Africans. Unable to touch weapons to defend themselves, or look or speak oppositionally, Africans had no power to fight against injustice. And, by denying Africans the ability to communicate with each other after being ripped away from their homes, they were robbed of yet another integral part of the human experience. Enslavement inflicted psychological pain upon Africans and essentially stripped them of their humanity. Mental illness in African populations were not initially recognized by the colonizers who came from Europe. Europeans believed that mental illness was rare among the tribes in Africa, they understood mental illness to be a product of the stress of civilization, and they believed that the Africans were not civilized. When one considers this, along with the fact that the colonizers saw Africans to be literally of another species, it makes sense how psychopathological nosology was based upon unfounded racist and colonialist ideas. These ideas, however, did not simply disappear once colonies gained independence. Eurocentric and racist notions that shaped the understanding of mental health care in the colonial Caribbean still persist today, according to several epidemiological studies. Black people who migrated from the Caribbean to the UK experience intense racism and social alienation. It is shown that there is still a very large risk ratio for psychoses and schizophrenia in African-Caribbean people living in England compared to the white native British people, which experts attribute to these racist social conditions. 
One psychiatrist, Frederick W. Hickling, asserts that the process of colonial enslavement and social engineering not only harms the mental health of Africans, but also may help prevent the development of schizophrenia in white colonists by virtue of the protective social differences experienced in their communities. Hickling asserts that racial discrimination and social disadvantage in the UK results in threats to African Caribbeans' everyday social life, but also has the power to challenge their self-perception and identity. Social conditions that have persisted across both time and space since enslavement in the colonial Caribbean still have a direct impact on the mental health of Africans today. Another way that health issues and disabilities related to slavery can be traced into the present day is by looking towards the higher rates of hypertension within African American communities. Hypertension, also known as high blood pressure, is a common condition in which the force of the blood pushes up against one's artery walls. It can be caused by a diet high in salt, fat, and cholesterol, as well as stress, obesity, and not exercising. In 1983, Thomas W. Wilson and Clarence E. Grimm proposed that the variability of salt retention or salt conservation, as well as blood pressure, among human beings today may be due to natural selection in the past. As I mentioned before, many Africans died during their journey to the Americas, with one in three Africans who were captured never actually having set foot in the Western Hemisphere. Mortality was often due to salt and water depletion. Africans experienced vast amounts of sweating, vomiting, and diarrhea when they were forced to march to the west coast of Africa, live in unventilated barracoons, stay in the cramped decks of slave ships, and work on plantations. Wilson and Grimm asserted that because Africans who could not adequately retain salt died before they were able to pass on their genes to subsequent generations, African Americans today have the tendency to develop hypertension because their bodies were naturally selected to conserve more salt. Here is a clip of the Vice Chancellor of the University of the West Indies, Sir Hilary Beckles, speaking at the World Family Doctor Day conference that was put on by the Caribbean College of Family Physicians in 2016. He comments upon the modern rates of hypertension throughout the Caribbean. We have 60% of the black people in the Caribbean over the age of 60 have hypertension or diabetes or both. Now, if you take the single criterion of chronic diseases, hypertension, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, if you take that simple criterion, the black people in the Caribbean are the unhealthiest people on the planet. And you have to understand that. On the one hand, we are watching Usain Bolt and we are watching the Caribbean athletes. We are watching the Caribbean with an image of being the most athletic people on the planet. But beneath that image of these super sportsmen and women is the hard reality that we are now the sickest people on the planet. In every black family in the Caribbean, hypertension and diabetes is endemic and congenital. In my family, almost everybody over 60 has hypertension and diabetes. And it's the same for your families, for all of our families. There is an explosion of ill health in the Caribbean. And this is a legacy of slavery and colonization. You take, you take a people, put them on an island for 300 years, give them salt fish and salt pork every day, overwork them, undermine them, sell their children, rape their wives, make them work 20 hours a day, 
overwork, malnourished, and take them through that stress, that stress profile of physical and mental terror, what you get? Hypertension and diabetes. It was the same then as it is now. When your doctor tells you to learn to relax, to learn to relax, take out your salt. Well, you can take out the salt, but your four parents couldn't take it because that's all they had, salt. And now the result is that black people in the Caribbean cannot metabolize salt and sugar. Although there is some debate surrounding the validity of Wilson and Grimm's slavery hypothesis in the academic community, it is undeniable that African Americans experience much higher rates of hypertension today. Whether this is a result of natural selection or the stress African Americans experience due to systemic racism or both, it is very likely that this medical condition has its roots in enslavement. This episode was written to help illuminate the various ways in which slavery in the colonial Caribbean was a disabling force for Africans. Although it is widely known that Africans endured intense physical pain from punishments under enslavement, it is not only important to recognize how these punishments can be quickly physically disabling, but also how they can slowly debilitate a person's body over time. And, as I covered in this episode, it was not just punishment that was a disabling force. It was the conditions Africans were forced to suffer through. This is including the miserable conditions upon slave ships, inadequate diets, and intense physical labor, all of which were endorsed by colonial law. The disablement of the African body began with the Middle Passage, but it did not end with the colonies gaining their independence. It continues into the present day with the persistence of racist ideologies and is demonstrated by higher rates of mental illnesses as well as higher rates of hypertension within African-American communities. The fight for liberation is not over. To conclude, I would like to acknowledge the sources that I utilized for my research. The music I played at the beginning and ending of this podcast is titled Slave Chant and was written in Barbados in 1775. It was published on YouTube by Roger Gibbs. The drum beats I played as transitions were cut from Cassius Guada's YouTube video titled African Heritage, African Drums, and Afro-Caribbean Drums. The primary documents I used are as follows. A book of acts and laws relating to Barbados published in 1682. An article in the Gentleman's Magazine titled Cruelty Attending the Slave Trade as a Present Practices on Negro Slavery, published October of 1780. Richard Ligon's A True and Exact History of the Island of Barbados, published in 1657. A Picture of Negro Slavery, printed by Ellerton and Henderson, published in 1826. An Act for the Governing of Negroes, passed in 1688. The remaining sources I used are as follows. Stephanie Hunt Kennedy's Between Fitness and Death, Disability and Slavery in the Caribbean, published in 2020. F.W. Hickling's The Epidemiology of Schizophrenia and Other Common Mental Health Disorders in the English-Speaking Caribbean, published in 2005. Emily Senior's The Caribbean and the Medical Imagination, 1764 through 1834, Slavery, Disease, and Colonial Modernity, published in 2018. Zachary Dorner's Merchant of Medicines, The Commerce and Coercion of Health in Britain's Long 18th Century, published 2020. Barbados.org by Caribbean Dreams Publishing. National Museums, Liverpool. Thomas W. Wilson and Clarence E. Grimm's Biohistory of Slavery and Blood Pressure Differences in Blacks Today, A Hypothesis, published in 1983. 
and lastly, Professor Sir Hilary Beckles' lecture at the Caribbean College of Family Physicians in 2016. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast.